Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, we had a crazy day yesterday. Hey Ben, yes indeed, it was really crazy. Um, it was actually the first uh, big protest, relatively. Uh, many thousands of people were in Martyrs Square. Uh, the first big protest, meaning after the coronavirus pandemic, etc. And it was also a very problematic one for reasons we will discuss in, in, in later in the episode. But it started as a protest, mostly peaceful, uh, some scuffles with security forces as usual. And then a bunch of people from uh, supporters of Amal and Hezbollah showed up from the Bshar al-Khuri side of the, of the Marty Square. Uh, some tensions between them and the security forces and between them and the and the protesters and between protesters and security forces as well like it's always the same thing right when you have two bunch of people and lines of security forces or army between them there are always tensions but nothing really major except that the protesters from the Amal and Hezbollah side uh, said something that was very provocative which is uh, they insulted Aisha, uh, one of the wives of uh, Prophet Muhammad, who they obviously shouldn't insult even if they are, uh, you know, from a different sectarian background. It's not like something that is extremely divisive, but there are some, uh, there is history of like divisions and the use of, of Aisha's name in, in sectarian tensions. Uh, in Lebanon, I've seen it before for sure in, on May 7, 2008, and during those incidents of high sectarian tensions between Shiites and Muslims. But anyway, this turned into a major deal with like all everyone condemning it and like highest rank of political forces uh, and religious institutions going up with, with, with state, coming out to statements saying how this is like uh, rejected and we should not do it, etc. And, um, and trying to say, oh, there's a huge sectarian tension happening that we need to calm down because after the protests, like later at night, things turned much nastier than during the morning or during the day. Uh, with like shootings happening, I think it was quite random. Like it was not directed, you know, at people, but it was a lot of a lot of gunfire from Tariq Jidi, from uh, nearby areas, Barbour, etc., uh, areas close here to Msaitbe. And there were also tensions during the afternoon in Ayn Rimmani, which is one of the green lines of, of the civil war, Ayn Rimmani Shiyah, because one of them has mostly Christian people and the other one has mostly Muslims, specifically Shiite. And there were tensions between supporters of the of uh, Hezbollah and Amal and between supporters of Lebanese forces and generally like young men from uh, the area. So the whole scene yesterday was a scene of like uh, a very alerting scene of like sectarian tensions, etc. Uh, although it started with a relatively mundane kind of protest that wasn't that exciting to begin with. Um, but anyway, we'll talk more about that, I think, in, in, in later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're recording this on Sunday. All of this happened just Saturday, yesterday to us. And, and we're not sure whether more tensions will continue today or if anything will actually happen by the time you listen to this. But yeah, that's the big story for this week. And like you say, Nizar, we're, we're going to be talking more about sort of the, the implications of this and the reasons behind it a little bit more uh, later on in the show. Uh, very quickly, though, we, we want to update everyone on the news of the week. Coronavirus, of course, is still a huge concern here in Lebanon. There were 100 new cases reported this past week. Uh, that brings the total from uh, 1,220 to 1,320. So exactly 100 cases from Saturday to Saturday 
this increase of 100, it's about the same increase as the week before. So going steady. Uh, but we did have sort of like there, there was a there was sort of a large aberration, I guess you could say, in that one day, 50 cases were recorded. Um, and, and also we have this aberration of 42 of the cases from this week are all from Barja, a town in Shouf, and they have all uh, reportedly been traced to a single expat who returned home and was not, I guess, uh, didn't take the needed precautions to uh, to keep the virus from spreading. Also this week, we had uh, two to three more deaths, depending on how you count it. Uh, so it brings the total up to uh, 29 deaths so far from COVID-19 in Lebanon. Cabinet has extended the general mobilization for four more weeks. They've been doing it sort of in, in twos, and they went up to four uh, weeks for this one, scheduled to end now on July 5th. Also, the fourth phase of expat returns uh, was announced. So that's going to run from June 11th through the 19th. That's this week into next and there's, this is going to be sort of a, a scaled down one. You, you'll remember that uh, phase three is really, really large. Um, I, I think something like 11,000 uh, Lebanese were supposed to be returned, something like 50 or 50 plus flights scheduled. Phase four is a lot smaller than that. It only has about 18 flights scheduled right now. Uh, also this week, in in sort of governmental news this week, both the president and the prime minister signed a decree calling parliament into an extraordinary session uh, from uh, from June 8th until October 19th. This is really important because we, we've talked about this before, but just to remind everyone who doesn't keep track of parliamentary schedules, uh, the Lebanese parliament meets twice a year in two regular sessions. The, the first regular session, the spring session, ended at the end of May. And so... Right now, Parliament couldn't meet if, if it wanted to, right? Uh, and so what, what they've done is they've used this constitutional mechanism to basically allow Parliament to meet if it so, chooses to do so uh, between now and the, uh, the fall session that begins on October 20th. So this literally runs right up to when the fall session begins. And, and this is really important because a lot of the things that need to happen right now for basically you know, fixing the, the fiscal ship of state, so to speak, and fixing the economy and all this stuff, it requires parliamentary action. And, and part of this as well is if there's some agreement reached with the IMF, that's going to require some sort of parliamentary action. And, and parliament has to be able to meet in order to do that. Of course, Parliament has been unable to do the, the most basic of things, which is pass a capital controls law, which uh, most observers see as crucial. And, and that includes reportedly the IMF itself. Yeah, this, I think, is the will be the most pressing task, right? Because the negotiations are ongoing and most of the IMF conditions will be uh, will will have to be translated into laws. So uh, it's 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 quite a big task for the upcoming period to for Lebanon to kind of satisfy the prior actions, uh, conditions of the IMF. Right. And, and speaking of the IMF talks, uh, <laughs> BDL and the Ministry of Finance this week finally sort of agreed to get on the same page numbers wise. Uh, this is really remarkable. You know, we, we've known that the positions of BDL and the Ministry of Finance have uh, not been the same in negotiations with the IMF, which, I mean, obviously you need to have a united negotiating position, right? If, you, if you're the state of Lebanon, you need to have a united uh, negotiating position. And, and they don't seem to have that. Not only that, but they don't really even seem to have all the same numbers. And so finally, they've taken a step, you know, to agree, okay, we're very least going to get on the same page numbers wise. Uh, that's what they say. We, of course, we'll, we'll see what happens.
Um, I'd like to note this uh, next item just really quickly. There has been an apparent murder of a high-ranking banker here in Lebanon. Uh, Antoine Dahur uh, was the head of group ethics and fraud risk management at Biblos Bank, one of the largest banks in the country. He was found dead, uh, I believe, in his parking garage. Uh, He had been hit in the head with a sharp object. And I just want to say there's a lot of speculation out there right now, but we really don't have any further details on this that have been confirmed. This might be a big case if it's not a personal one. So this is a case to keep an eye on. Absolutely, absolutely. In other financial news, uh, an update on the lira. The exchange houses are open again. They they were closed for about a month, um, and now they are open again. And the rate as of right now is about 3,900 lira to the dollar. The idea with this is to bring the rate down to 3,200. And this will apparently be done by force, as in the state moving into shut down black market operators, as well as exchange houses that fail to follow the uh, set rate. Also, this does not seem to be so. This, this doesn't seem to be uh, done by BDL or anything like some sort of BDL monetary uh, intervention. In fact, one of the representatives of the syndicate of exchange shop owners said that you know BDL doesn't really have the funds to do that anymore to support the peg in that way. And and the the drop in the lira has had far-reaching consequences, as everyone who's listened to us knows, for all of Lebanon, for for everybody in the country. Of course, though, those problems are magnified when you uh, talk about migrant workers and domestic workers here in the country. They are getting probably the shortest end of the stick in all of this. Um, And so this week we saw, I mean, just incredible scenes of a a lot of uh, Ethiopian workers basically being driven to the consulate and dropped off by the people who had employed them. And and this is this has become just sort of like this wild story where basically domestic workers and migrant workers are not getting paid what they were supposed to get paid. They're not getting paid in dollars like they were and largely. And and so they've seen a real drop off in the money that they can take back. And now it seems as though they're they're not being some of them are not being paid at all to the point where their employers are saying, we, we don't want to have you around the house anymore. We don't want to have you. And so we're just literally going to drop you off at your country's consulate. Yeah, it was really surreal, but like, unfortunately, not so surprising because uh, like when you have a system like Kafala that commodifies people so much, really like you don't see people treating domestic workers as humans uh, in a lot of cases because the system really deals with them as commodities uh, more or less. And Apart from this big story and real story, we've also had some bad things happening on the internet with like people going on secondhand item groups on Facebook and other sites and like advertising their domestic workers there. There's this like the whole panic about what to do about your domestic worker. And I understand that people find a huge difficulty in getting dollars. It's almost impossible now to pay original salaries, right? Like if you were paying $200, to your domestic worker now, you have to pay 800000 for uh, uh, to get the dollars. So I understand it's a real difficulty. I, I, I believe that the state has to intervene with, with creative solutions on how to resolve that. But the behavior of families now and of employers has been really outrageous. It's, it's really insane. As you said, like this incident was like a, the clearest manifestation of, of uh, the injustice against them. 
uh, the labor minister intervened, but also like the biggest role is usually played by NGOs and activists who point at these things when they happen and give them the enough attention that they need, and then like refer some of the workers to shelters, etc. And uh, this week we also saw a protest by civil defense workers. These are the you know the emergency workers, the a lot of EMTs, uh, that that kind of thing, and and they're they're volunteers, but they've been promised positions with pay. That hasn't happened. Uh, and so they protested this week in front of the interior ministry. Yeah, they've been protesting for many years for the same exact same demands. And now there's higher concern that they might never be uh, employed because of the, the austerity push by the government and the expected rules of no public employment that will be imposed uh, as part of the IMF deal if it happens. And finally, we also had like one of bizarre and quite outrageous thing that happened this week as well with Jamil Sayed, the current MP from Malbek al-Hirmil and previously uh, the head of general security during the days of the Syrian occupation of Lebanon prior to 2005. Jamil Said, if you don't know him, is someone who's been known for to be very close to the Syrian regime. After Hariri's assass- Rafiq Hariri's assassination, he was put in jail. But then a few years later, he was released for lack of evidence against him, along with the other generals. If you remember the case of the four generals, he was one of them. And Jamil Said has been al- always been accused of having a main role in like enforcing Syrian regime hegemony in Lebanon and persecuting people who were expressing anti-Syrian regime sentiments during the years of 1998, 1997, 1998 till 2005 uh, when he was jailed. So this is the background for this man. He ran in the elections. He got one of the highest number of votes in the country, insane number of votes he got in, in, in his district. And uh, he's being kind of groomed. It's it's being said to be replacing Burri. Okay, so this is a high-profile politician. And he's speaker of parliament, not exactly. as head of Amal. Not as head of Amal, of course. And he's quite independent from Amal and Hezbollah at the same time, heavily dependent on his on his good relationships relations with Hezbollah. And in the end, he was on Hezbollah's list in the elections. But the important thing is that he's a high-ranked politician now, and he's using a lot of populist discourse to attract people who previously disliked him and now think he is, you know, pro-people and their rights, etc. And this week, he kind of screwed all of this at previous attempts of uh, uh, of reviving or, or of improving his reputation by making a statement that was so outrageous, basically saying, if uh, Zaim, if, if, if an official, for example, sees protesters coming near his house, and his family is in his house, and the protesters are saying bad things about him, like insulting him. Uh, and if he doesn't have guards outside of his house, he should shoot them from the window. Like, I have no fucking clue how he thought this is an acceptable thing to say. He was, I think, in parliament or somewhere like really official making a statement to press. It was not some comments that he made randomly or that were leaked, right? He he's made them intentionally and he was like, I am responsible for my words. If you don't have guards outside, shoot them from the window. Uh, absolutely outrageous. And it comes one week after protesters were at his place accusing him of being part of corruption and saying, you know, harami, harami, Jamil Sayyid harami, which means thief. It's, it's a basically a slogan that is said again, a chant that is said against anyone accused of corruption, usually in protests. And it was quite, it was a peaceful um, protest. Nothing major happened. Not No one even heard of it, to be honest. It was just a minor thing. But Jamil Said reacted very impulsively in the beginning when it happened, accusing the Communist Party of standing behind it, etc. Then he apologized saying, okay, the Communist Party are, uh, have nothing to do with this. 
And then a few days later, out of nowhere, he just makes this outrageous statements about shooting protesters from the window. And obviously, we didn't see any serious political uh, movement against uh, what he said from like the authorities. And I don't expect to, 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 to see any developments on that. And given that he is an MP and he has immunity in this great system. Yeah, I mean, he he's one of these people who has been throwing out a lot of like bombs about, oh, these other politicians are corrupt, all of this stuff, especially, you know, around the time of the, the revolution and everything like that. But when it comes down to it, it seems as though he he's firmly on the side of the elite here in, in, in the struggle. Yeah, which is where he should be and which is where he really is. So it's I'm, I'm quite glad that he made these statements, to be honest. All right. Well, and speaking of protests, that's our main topic uh, this week, the, the the big protests that happened on Saturday. I, I mean, and th- there's a lot that goes into this, right? Because it wasn't a normal protest like the ones that we saw right, uh, you know, October 17th, right after, uh, right after the revolution started, right? Yeah, this has been one of the most, like the biggest manifestations uh, since COVID-19 started, uh, because a lot of, there's like this... So I'll tell you kind of how how this developed or how I understand it to have developed. Like there has been a, a lot of sentiments that say, okay, we can't stay at home anymore. We can't just say we're not going to protest until coronavirus ends because it's not going to end probably till a few years from now when we get access to enough vaccines because people with corona will keep, you know, being alive and moving around the globe. So it doesn't make sense to say we're going to we're going to stop protesting till it happens, especially the, as this is the most one of the most important or sensitive moments in the country's history. So this is the general mood that has been building up for the last few weeks. Uh, and then some people like started calling for protests on this day, the, the June, uh, June 6, 6, 6, right, with under different demands. But there has been there are been a lot of like suspicious uh, calls for protests specifically against Hezbollah's weapons on this day, although no political groups at all, uh, either from the establishment or from the civil society or the opposition political groups, endorsed this demand formally or called for protests based on this demand. There have been some circulating uh, invitations or called for protests based on that demand. Uh, basically, the, the, manif- the, the translation of it into official or formal terms is the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1559, which is basically uh, the one that included uh, that Syrian regimes have to withdraw from Lebanon back in 2004 or five, and the the that Hezbollah, as other militias did, should uh, submit its weapons to surrender its weapons to the state in Lebanon. So this is one of the most divisive topics, obviously, in Lebanese politics. And it was very weird for people to be calling for protests about this demand specifically now. And this is why I think no political group at all thought it was a good idea to endorse it. But still, it became the biggest uh, uh, news of the week. The other main demand that groups did call for, uh, for example, Sab'a and uh, other groups b- mobilized based on the idea of early parliamentary elections, to which there was also a lot of critique uh, because, you know, what can elect, what can elections fix now if you have an elections in like seven months or eight months based on the current law and without any change in social or economic policies any change in the electoral law or the electoral system you will not really have a very different outcomes or results from the elections so there are a lot of critiques uh, for this and other reasons against this demand but these were the most like, kind of significant demands that came out in, in public discourse and it was a very difficult moment because this protest was basically a test for political groups, right? Do you participate or do you don't? Do you uh, boycott or basically avoid participating? Because the amount of propaganda that we have been seeing in the last at least week or 10 days 
from the surroundings of Hezbollah and Amal and people who claim to be on the left but are basically really left-wing extensions of, of Hezbollah and Amal's politics in a way or another, especially when it comes to Hezbollah's weapons and its uh, military might, etc. These people have been doing a lot of propaganda saying like everyone who will go down on the, to the streets on, on June 6th is a traitor and is someone who wants to create sectarian divisions and all of these things. And this propaganda has been insanely successful in creating tensions and creating negative feelings from people in the uh, in the Shiite communities specifically and uh, people who have opinions favorable of Hezbollah's resistance, etc., to be taking a stance, a very strong stance against the, the protests. So this meant that political groups that seek to, you know, uh, attract uh, members or potential members from all communities cannot really go to the or accept or endorse this protest with a clear mind. So most groups actually did not, uh, when it comes to groups on the left and progressive groups, except for very few, including my the political movement that I'm part of, Lihaqi, which, which decided to go to the streets, but under a very different kind of discourse and uh, kind of force its uh, its own discourse in the street with a huge banner calling for basic socioeconomic rights and the discourse focused on socioeconomic needs but generally this was a really difficult moment uh yeah it, especially with this demand you know i i think uh on on 1559 that's one of these things that's really it, it's really out of place given the history of the saura given uh you know the history of the protests not out of place in the history, in the normal history of Lebanon, right? Because this basically goes back to recreating the March 14th, March 8th divide. And that's something, you know, that, that's been institutionalized in Lebanese politics and in the elite since the assassination of Rufi Hariri in 2005. The thing that strikes me as, you know, th- this is this is weird and out of place and there's something a little bit off about this demand is, you know, you know that first off, we haven't seen it so much in the protests, but uh, also it just serves the fact that people are bringing this up right now shows me that not everyone's eye is on the financial ball, so to speak, and the governance ball, so to speak. They're much more concerned with this uh, imbalance of power amongst elites that stems from Hezbollah being the only legally armed party uh, in the country. And, and and that's to me, it seems like a very very much a side issue, given the enormity of the collapse that uh, Lebanon is looking at. Yeah, and Ben, I think uh, most protesters agree with you. I I only saw one sign in the protest that mentioned Hezbollah's weapons. No political groups, as I said, mentioned Hezbollah's weapons. As you said, this is not a demand that is usually held up in protest. So why was it there? We we tend to explain these things usually in terms of we call them the acts of of intelligence agencies or 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 basically state agencies or party agencies that try to kind of manipulate what is happening in the streets in order to give it a different dimension. And this is why some people on the left, especially, have been uh, talking about the June 6th protest as a counter-revolution because it carries this demand that is quite alien from uh, usual uh, Thawra demands and Thawra discourse. And it's clearly aimed at uh, re-entrenching the divisions based on March 8 versus March 18, which is primarily about Hezbollah's weapons and the relation to the Syrian regime. So this is uh, like understandable, right? Like this clearly looks like a counter-revolutionary thing to do, to divide people based on the line that you know for sure uh, they will not agree on. 
what to do with Hezbollah's weapons and what kind of relationship to have with the Syrian regime, especially the first thing. Because this is a really genuine issue of disagreement among the Lebanese people. It's not really like fabricated or, or projected. People don't have the same opinions and it's, they have serious divisions about this. So I agree that like resurfacing this demand specifically is like a very counter-revolutionary thing. And this is why it's not very understandable that it comes from uh, people who are part of the Thawra. And this is why no political groups at all endorse it. But there was a different opinion about the protests saying, no, uh, political groups that have progressive and left-wing discourse should not boycott uh, the protests, should be there, should not leave the streets, and should be uh, pushing for their own discourse. What I said, uh, Lihaqi decided to do. And this is an issue. A lot of people criticize Lihaqi for it, obviously. I understand. I was not very excited about participating or uh, for participation in general in the beginning. But the thing is, what happened, for example, in Lihaqqa gives you an idea about this whole dynamic. The the people who are in Beirut, activists who are in Beirut, were mostly, and people on the left especially, were mostly against participating. While people in, in the regions, uh, in Lihaqqa's grassroots in different regions, were more excited about it. And they formed the majority of people who were part of the protest. And this is why, basically, uh, it's always good to not be making political decisions about things like that in Beirut among the the circle or inside the bubble of activists, right? You need to see whether people are genuinely interested in participation. And when we saw that people from different areas of Lebanon were sending us uh, uh, news about their participation, then it made sense to participate because there is a genuine like five, ten thousand people who are there and who are protesting for reasons that we know and we trust. Although some people are trying to ride the movement with with their own demands, but there is a serious like desire to go to the street and and anger to be expressed, etc. So you should be there and you should uh, not leave the streets just for the discourse of some bourgeois forces and and sectarian forces. You're talking about people who are not necessarily partisans of the Lebanese forces or Kataeb or Baha Hariri or, or any of these other, you know, forces that supposedly were out on Saturday. Yeah, definitely. And even some people who are supporters of Kataeb or of Lebanese forces, I think some people who have very strong stances against Hezbollah know very well that this is not the time to bring this up. So there's a sense of political maturity that exists. It's not like people are focused on one issue and they don't see anything else. But you have to take into consideration that Recently, we saw the whole issue of Hezbollah um, being accused of smuggling oil to Syria. So this issue, this scandal, kind of brought a lot of brought up a lot of uh, discussions about, you know, what's the purpose of all the government's economic measures if uh, there's one um, military establishment called Hezbollah that uh, can do its own kind of illegal commerce and make us lose money because, you know, the oil that we are buying from abroad is subsidized by the state, by the central bank with dollars. And there's a problem and there's a shortage of dollars. And we saw before how gas stations went on strike because of that. So there were a lot of like the issue of Hezbollah's weapons. This is how it's resurfaced recently. But if you look at the last few weeks, you don't only see that. You see also Qabalan's speech that we talked about, the uh, Shiite Islamic clerk who made like the, the, the big uh, statement saying the Ta'if agreement is done and uh, the national pact is no longer valid, etc. Big, big talk that scares the Christians. And we talked about that before in previous episodes. 
the federalism debate, which is also a highly sectarian debate in Lebanon about, you know, whether we should turn into a federal state, which means every sect will be basically have its own district or its own little state to govern. Hariri's rise as like a more anti-Hezbollah and like a Sunni macho guy to counter Saad al-Hariri's uh, defeat or whatever. All of these things have been building up, right, uh, in a way that prepares the country to be back in the framework of original political divisions of March 8 versus March 14, rather than divisions that were uh, central to the uprising itself. And one of the main achievements of the revolution, in my opinion, is that it kind of rotated the lines of conflict. Instead of making them about, you know, people from different sectarian backgrounds and different political stances on Hezbollah or Syrian regime or whatever, it became a conflict between people in the, on the top and people on the, in the bottom. Uh, th- this is the one of the main achievements. And counter-revolution to me is the political forces attempt and the sectarian forces and religious institutions attempt to rotate this line of conflict back to the original ones, which will ensure their sustainability. Because if you hear the news last night, you will see basically 30 minutes of the news on any TV channel was basically religious, the main establishment, religious and political organizations and institutions and figures making statements against sectarianism. These are literally the people who, who are constantly reproducing and enforcing sectarianism in Lebanon. And the whole news was how they are condemning uh, sectarian tensions in the streets or whatever things we talked about in the beginning of the episode. Yeah, yeah. It, it's extraordinarily ironic, right, that these institutions who are like in many ways designed to protect sectarianism you know they're the ones coming out and saying no 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 don't be sectarian when really well well what are they 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 are representatives of sects who defend their sex they you know they're the they are the most sectarian parts of Lebanese society uh in in a certain way of looking at things yeah I mean we're talking about Dar al-Fatwa about Hezbollah about Amal about Hariri Jublat like <laughs> these are the symbols of sectarianism and the, it, it was basically a whole theater play that I don't, I don't know it's really one of the most like frustrating and moments that create a sense of uh, desperation and hopelessness in Lebanon is when these things happen because they all look so fucking fabricated and it's so clear how uh, political and religious forces kind of exploit the the marginalized young men who uh, are sent to the streets as in form of you know thugs or qabadayat to beat the shit out of people it's just so frustrating because you as like someone who cares about the country really really can't do anything when you see this shit but uh, to going back to the politics of it like I, I really want to emphasize that when we talk about Hezbollah and and Amal supporters going to the streets and you know, uh, attacking protesters, it's usually not that uh, spontaneous. And uh, we should always remember that Hezbollah has and Amal have like basically a point that they always have to reproduce and to establish, which is that in Shiite communities in Lebanon, the issue of politics and who has the the, the widest political influence should not be a question at all, right? And this is something that is a trap that sometimes people fall in when they're talking, uh, when they're analyzing or even mobilizing politically, uh, because they believe that in Shiite areas, there is no hope for political change. The conclusion is either we only like do politics or mobilize in other areas, or that there is no hope in change in Lebanon completely. And this is not true. And the uprising and the very serious uh, street action and revolutionary scenes that we saw in many Shiite areas in Lebanon during the uprising, especially in the south and the east, 
were a proof that no, people there are not like basically special kind of humans who are uh, obedient politically to Hezbollah and Amal at all. This is not this is a very stupid, naive and kind of quite elitist way of understanding uh, social domination. But still, this is a thing that is a talking point that is always there in the background. And Hezbollah has interest and Amal have interest in, in maintaining the, it there because they want to keep all independent politics, especially that one that is based on real class interests and material interests of people away from Shiite communities, because this is the only thing that probably can take away some of their influence, a, a, a movement that is uh, focused on socioeconomic rights. And that is a very good point. But then there's also the bottom line, right? We have to talk about money here and we have to talk about the purpose of the government. That's, that's another big reason here. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, Hassan Diab's government has not been able to achieve a lot and will probably not be, be able to achieve uh, anything so major except getting money from uh, from abroad, right? This is like saving the Lebanese economy or bringing in oxygen to the Lebanese system. And uh, we know from history in Lebanon and across the world that when it happens that when you have, you know, an IMF deal coming or one that is being made, you also seem to have to have a lot of um, a lot of suppression of labor unions, of uh, protest movements, etc. It's basically a very simple equation in my mind from from my perspective. If you need to pass an unpopular decision of the size of an IMF deal and further austerity measures and probably more regressive taxation, you need to sh- to ensure that there is no serious political uprising facing you and challenging this uh, this decision or this uh, direction. Uh, so there is real interest by the government in having this counter-revolution today, even if the conflict turns sectarian, even if, because there is no decision for a civil war at all and we're very far from it, uh, even if people are divided more than they are today, it's not a bad thing because it will only make sure that the politic- the, the independent anti-establishment uprising is weaker than it was seven or eight months ago because they know for sure Hassan Diab and everyone knows. I'm not saying Hassan Diab is behind this, but I'm saying that the government has real interest and the political forces forming the government have real interest in uh, in, in this counter-revolution today and in foiling the, the popular uprising or another popular uprising from happening because they all have interest to uh, pump back the oxygen into the Lebanese system from IF money, IMF money, from SADR money, from other uh, international aid that might come. So this is their main uh, strategic interest now. And the, you cannot really, you cannot do that without uh, ensuring some form of stability or support for the government. And we saw this uh, during the early 90s. We talked about it in the Rafi Hariri episode, how there was a need at that moment, similarly to today, to impose a certain security situation or to basically prevent labor unions from uh, from challenging the government's economic plan, which back then was Horizon 2000 and the, all the neoliberal reforms that it entailed. And today is the Hassan Diab's plan and all the neoliberal reforms it entailed, including specifically uh, the IMF program. So. Uh, back then, the army went down and shot at labor union uh, protesters. And yesterday, the army and political and security forces were basically had one command room. They were they had a joint operation more or less, and they kicked everyone out of Marty Square a couple of hours after the scuffle started. It was a very clear strategy that they've employed tens of times so far since the beginning of the uprising, like pushing people out from Marty Square, even like pushing them all the way to to almost to Daura. So uh, it was very clear, like political decision has been made between the interior ministry and the Ministry of Defense to to end the protests uh, when they have the excuse to do so. Yeah, and if you're 
looking at this from the perspective of the IMF, for instance, you you want Lebanon to be able to repay whatever money you loan them, right? And Lebanon, it's not Egypt. There's no CC at the top that is able to <laughs> by himself basically direct a lot of the stuff that goes on in the country and suppress protests and whatnot. No, you're in Lebanon, which means you, you don't have that central power. And so if, if you're the government, you probably want to demonstrate that you are actually capable of doing things that normal governments can do uh, and of taking decisions and of implementing things. And and one of those things includes, you know, not letting protests get out of hand on the streets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, fundamentally, that is a, a huge question and, and, and something that has always seemed to me to be sort of unlikely but that it provides a motivation here that that the government needs to show that it's competent that it's able to do its job because if you know the IMF is most likely going to be asking for you know some some very politically unpopular things to happen and if the government can't even keep a handle on protests right now how is it going to fare uh, when it starts implementing you know something in accordance with the agreement with the IMF well, maybe those things won't get implemented if the protests get too out of control, right? And so you, you can definitely see that this is an important facet of this, you know, counter-revolution that you're that you're talking about. That no, we need to show that this system, this elite is resilient. We're able, yes, we we're taking a big hit now, but we are able to get our act together and we will be able to perform up to whatever standards we agree with the IMF and with other creditors. Yeah, and we'll see how this, like, uh, we we have an eye on the talks between the Lebanese government and the IMF. We'll see how that uh, develops and what happens in the streets in the next few weeks and few months, uh, because these things are very related, as we've been saying, and uh, they sometimes influence each other. Anyway, I think that's all of the time we have for this episode. We will be back soon. Uh, not sure if next week or the week after. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.